Feel free to grab a seat. Good morning, Aletheia Church. It's good to see so many of you guys. It's good to see some faces starting to roll back in. I know student-wise. Um, if this is your first time here, welcome. We're glad you're here. My name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn over to the book of Ruth, Ruth chapter 1. If you don't have a Bible, uh, feel free to head to the back. Uh, we have a bunch back there that we would just love to give to you. Uh, we love God's Word here. We believe it is how God is speaking to us even today. And uh, yeah, and we, we study books of the Bible here together as a church, both on Sunday mornings, but also throughout the week um, in our gospel community groups. So uh, for those of you guys that weren't here last week, uh, last week we, we started trying to, to work through this Old Testament book called the Book of Ruth. And really what we did last week is we started trying to answer this question, because I think this is one of the first questions that gets posed to us in the book of Ruth. Um, is God present in the midst of pain and suffering? That was kind of the first question that we could ask ourselves as we start studying this book together. And what we saw last week, and, and, and last week was really, really foundational to some really beautiful things we're going to see over the course of the next four to five weeks as we study this book together. But what we saw is kind of the, the, the first character we're kind of introduced to who has a, a main role to play in this story is this woman by the name of Naomi. And Naomi loses everything. And, and when I say that, I mean quite literally, she loses everything. If you've ever read the book of Job, we're talking kind of that level of suffering and hardship that she faces. And she is left after losing both her husband and both of her sons. Uh, she is left with no choice but to return to Israel, uh, her homeland, uh, whom she and her husband had abandoned years prior due to famine. And she has these two daughter-in-laws, one by the name of Orpah and one by the name of Ruth. And Orpah chooses to stay in Moab and return to her family and remarry and stay in Moab. But Ruth, the other daughter, in verses 16 and 17 of chapter 1 says this, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. And what we saw from that as we, as we see Ruth kind of make that proclamation and begin to covenant with Naomi is we see that Ruth places her faith and her trust in the God of Israel. That she moves from not having a place in the covenant community of Israel to, by faith, trusting that the God of Israel will take care of her moving forward. And this was a big decision for Ruth because she was not promised anything by making this decision. She wasn't promised to be taken care of. She wasn't promised a new family. She wasn't promised a husband. She wasn't promised a livelihood. But she places her faith and her trust in the God of Israel and in that covenants with Naomi as well. 
And so what we saw was Ruth is a story about how God, in his sovereignty, uses pain, suffering, loss, and even death to rescue and redeem Ruth, Naomi, Israel, and subsequently even us thousands of years later. Because what we're going to see by the time we get to the end of this narrative is that the line of Jesus Christ comes through the line of Ruth. And that God's redemptive plan for mankind runs straight through suffering, pain, and loss. And what I encouraged us in last week, because really in reality, as we kind of laid out just the foundations of this story and what we saw, we don't get to see a bunch of what God ends up doing in the midst of all this. And what I encouraged us was, is the call that we can kind of give to one another and the way that we can encourage one another as we face all of this is that as God looks out on us and as we embrace the suffering and hardship that goes on around us was this idea of not wasting our suffering and hardship. That God is present and can relate with us in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our trial, and that he has promised that he will use it for our good and his glory. And he will use our suffering to teach us and to display in us his sufficiency for us. And so as we move into our text this morning, so much of what we talked about last week of this like looking forward to God's redemption and beauty and glory, we haven't actually seen yet. I've just kind of told you, I've kind of ruined the story, and I told everyone what happens in this if you're, if you're unfamiliar with it. But what we see is that Ruth pledging herself to Naomi and her faith to trust God, that ultimately we're going to see this redemption kind of start to play out this week. But we're still asking questions, and specifically, Naomi herself is really still struggling at this point in the narrative. She is hurting, she is angry, she is upset, and she's asking herself questions like, where is God in the midst of all this? Where is he? How could God do this to me? Why would he allow this? And can God be at work in our suffering even when we don't see it? Because what we're going to see this morning, and I'll try to point this out a number of different times to you guys, but in the, in the midst of everything going on here, God is already at work. He is sovereignly moving things. He is having, by chance, right, everyone's favorite line, Things happen in the life of Ruth and Naomi that are going to be really, really important to seeing Ruth's life and Naomi's life redeemed. But Naomi and Ruth have no idea about any of it. They cannot see at that moment that God is at work. And so we're going to begin to be able to kind of then take this on ourselves and say, hey, if I am in the midst of pain, hardship, suffering, difficulty, hurt, is it possible that God might be present here and I just can't see it? Is it possible that he is at work? And I would submit to you that he most certainly is. 
Right, so let's, look at, let's turn over to Ruth chapter 1, and let's look at verse 19. We're going to look at the remainder of chapter 1 here in this first part this morning, starting in verse 19. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred up because of them. And the women said, is this Naomi? She said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite and her daughter-in-law with her who returned from the country of Moab and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Okay, so Ruth and Naomi have returned to Bethlehem. This is Elimelech's hometown. They've returned to Judah. They're back home. They're back amongst their people. And they're not just back among the people of Israel. They're actually back among their tribe. They are with like their crew, their family inside the nation of Israel. And it says the whole town was stirred up because of them. Now, if you don't know Hebrew, right, you're going to miss out on something that's being communicated about what was going on between Naomi and Ruth and everyone that was in Bethlehem. Because when I say, hey, you know, we went out this week and the Gators are uh, projected to be one of the top five teams in the nation and the city's just really stirred up. And what we would mean by that is we kind of say, oh, well, everyone's just kind of excited, right? They're, 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 they're moving on. They're excited about the future and what it might contain. But in the Hebrew, the word stirred there actually means they're uneasy about Naomi and Ruth's presence and they're embarrassed to be around them. There, there is a level in an, uh, of understanding that we need to see that Naomi and Elimelech leaving Israel was tantamount to rejecting them as people and rejecting God. And so when they return, everyone's kind of like, oh, look who's back. Right? This idea of gossip and um, just maybe even a little bit of anger towards Naomi for leaving them in the midst of a famine and not sticking it out with them and not being there, right, leads to this uneasiness and embarrassment when they return. And the women in particular, right, once they get back, start asking amongst themselves, is this Naomi? Like, is this, is this the same Naomi, the same Naomi who was loving life in Moab and things were great and they were going to form a new life and forge a new life for this? Is this the same Naomi that we saw leave us and be ready to go? And I want you to, to pause and think about this for a moment. If the whole city of Bethlehem is stirred up and uneasy and, and feels embarrassed to be around Naomi and Ruth, what is going to continue to go on in Naomi's mind at this point as someone who's lost everything? Right? Not only has she lost her husband and her two sons and has no way to feed herself or feed Ruth, she's returned to her people out of desperation and necessity with a foreign mouth to feed, and now she has to endure the gossip and judgment of those around her. She returns to the judgment of her own people, and this is going to finally bring Naomi to a breaking point. And let me read verse 20 and 21 for you guys again. She says to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, 
For the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me, and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So see how broken Naomi is at this point. She's so hurt and distraught by where she's at in life. If you guys don't know this, Naomi means pleasant. And she, right, in her hurt and in her pain, is like, I am not pleasant to be around right now. Do not call me that anymore. Nothing about my life is pleasant. It is a lie for my name to even hint that things might be okay. Instead of calling me Naomi, call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. And that word Mara means bitter in Hebrew. Right? Naomi's pain has driven her to a place where life is bitter and she's angry with God. That's where she's at. She's gone from being taken care of, having a husband, having a family, right? having, having the, the Israelite dream to it all being taken away from her. And she responds in anger and bitterness towards God. Now guys, there are shades of what we see from Israel here in, from, in Exodus 15 to what we see here. If you turn over to Exodus 15 with me, Israel's just, I can't think of a better word for it right now, so I'm just going to use hilarious. But I love how when you study, in particular in the book of Exodus, these high highs where God does something magnificent for the people of Israel, and literally a paragraph later, they forget all of it. It's just this consistent theme for Israel. And so when you get to Exodus 15, chapter 22, excuse me, Exodus 15, starting in verse 22, The previous 21 verses are a song that Israel sings about how God has delivered them from Pharaoh and literally parted the Red Sea for them. So they're in this moment of jubilant uh, celebration and worship of God for his deliverance and what he's done. He's just performed an outrageous miracle at parting the Red Sea. They head across the sea. They are in the wilderness. They are in the desert. And look at what happens starting in verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness, and they found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What shall we drink? So, celebrating God's great we have no water. God, what have you done? (laughs) Right? Very, very, very quickly, they lose sight of God's providence, God's provision, and God's ability to meet them even when things are difficult, right? If you remember them before they crossed the Red Sea, Pharaoh's army was bearing down on them with their backs to the sea. They had nowhere to go. And when there was no way, God made a way for them. And yet three days later, once they get across the the Red Sea, God can't do anything anymore. 
He's done. He actually only parted the Red Sea so he could kill us over here instead. This is God's grand design. And so they are angry with God again very, very quickly. And in that breeds resentment towards Moses and towards God. And if we go back then to Ruth chapter 1, right? Naomi's response is not that different from Israel's response in the wilderness. Ian Duguid, uh, a pastor in Scotland, kind of put it this way when he was talking about Naomi's bitterness and how it, her resentment towards God is forming. He says, in response to God, her heart had grown hard and bitter toward him, both recognizing at the same time and resenting his power in her life. Right, That she both realizes She's in subjection to God and completely dependent upon him. And in that dependence, she's also angry and bitter with him. Right? Doesn't that seem just crazy? Right? How could we realize I'm in complete dependence upon God and yet I'm angry and resentful towards him in that dependence? And yet I would, I would say this. Right? She, she says, she went away full, she came back empty, and this is all God's fault. How regularly do we, in seasons of hurt, and trial, and despair, and suffering, know intellectually or maybe theologically our need and dependence upon God and our Creator, but when we start thinking about our lot and where we're at in life, we are angry and bitter and resentful to Him because He's withholding from us. As I don't think there's a single person in this room here this morning that is any better than Naomi. And I would imagine if you sit there and you think long enough, you can probably relate with her. You can, re you can relate with the resentment. You can relate with the bitterness. And that kind of brings us to a question, I think, that, that pops up when we're looking at this. What, why do we become bitter? Even if we have good theology and we believe in God and we know we need Him. Why would we still become bitter towards God? What could cause this in Naomi? What would drive us to this resentment and anger? And so I've got three things here that I want us to think through, three things that I think we see out of Naomi here that are really applicable for us as well. So let's go through them. All right, so the first one is this. We tend to kind of notice bitterness and resentment and anger towards God's welling up in our own hearts and in our own emotions when we forget that God is sovereign and creator. And notice, by the way, Naomi is fully aware that God is sovereign and creator. But what I mean by this is we don't just intellectually um, understand it, but that we emotionally, on a heart level, submit to that truth. Right? Naomi knows, hey, God is sovereign. He's creator, right? His people are my people. I should return to him. But she's still resentful and angry towards him because she doesn't like the reality that she's not in control. Right? There's a difference between knowing that God is sovereign and in control and wanting to be God to be sovereign and in control. And Naomi is in this place where she theologically knows this, but on a heart level, she doesn't like the implications of it. 
Right? Do you ever struggle day to day like me to remember that the universe does not revolve around you? Let me, let's, let's do an exercise real quick. Simple illustration. Some of you guys are going to run with this. Some of you guys are going to be like, Kevin's got an anger problem. How many of you guys, show of hands, because I want us to be, you know, here's a moment to be honest and open and transparent with one another and authentic. How many of you guys have ever found yourself angry in traffic with somebody around you? Okay, the rest of you are liars. Thank you. All right, so here's, here's an encouraging moment. Everybody knows how many hands went up there? We're in this together. The Lord is calling all of us to repent. Okay, so so here's where we're at, though, right? Why do we get so angry? Pause and think about it for a moment. Why would we allow that to anger us so deeply? To where we would be furious with a complete stranger? I, I, I have some ideas. Right, when, I, when I'm angry at a light or I get held up because of someone else, I'm saying things, doesn't this person know how much of a hurry I'm in? Don't they know I'm behind them? Did they not get the text message this morning? Hey, Kevin's on the road, road this morning. Just want to let you know, be on the lookout for that Civic. Get out of his way. Guys, we live in a world where the system, the culture, the, the things we're taught both implicitly and explicitly, right? whether we realize it or not, we live life in such a way that it is structured to encourage us towards complete self-reliance and self-love. And in that comes a dangerous propensity to believe that life is designed for us and our enjoyment. Now, when I say that out loud, some of us are like, well, I mean, yeah, but I mean, come on. But think about it. If life is designed for you and your enjoyment, what does that mean for the person sitting next to you if what you find to be good and joyful doesn't jive with what they like? We got problems. What if the way you drive is not really the way I want you to drive? Right, We're filled with problems. And what we see is, is we may intellectually know God is the creator of the universe, but we live life and we believe that that God created the universe to center around me. And guys, that can be a hard pill to swallow. Because then when life gets really, really tough and things get really, really difficult, We're not ready to face that storm because we think things should be differently than they are. We assume that the universe is just laid out for us and it's not. I mean, let's let's look at it just biblically, right? Psalm chapter 19, verse one, throw that up there for me. The heavens declare the glory of who? God. Does it say the heavens declare the glory of Kevin? It says, the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Right? All of this exists. The entire world exists to bring glory to the creator, 
not for us. Right? You may have been taught at some point in time, oh, God created the world because he loves you and he just wants to provide for you. I mean, maybe to a very, very minuscule extent. God created it for him. And some of you guys are like, that sounds kind of narcissistic. Well, when you are the supreme being of the universe, being a narcissist is better than doing it for you because he's better than you. It's not narcissistic for God to be after his own glory because he's worthy of his own glory. Right? The problem with narcissists in human society is you're not worthy of that. You're not worthy of that attention and love and worship and devotion that a narcissist demands of those relationally around them. But God is. It's not narcissism. It's truth. It's reality. God is worthy of that devotion and love and attention because if he really does exist and he really did speak the entire universe into existence, he's better than you. He knows more than you. He knows how things should go. And when he demands or asks something of you, it's an act of love and revelation, not an act of, Uh, against your will and your sovereignty. Because the truth is, you don't have any. God is sovereign over all. Look at Genesis 1, 26 for me. Even in the creation of human beings, look at how God lays this out. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish and over the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. What is God communicating to us there? Hey, human beings might be the, the pinnacle of creation, but it's not because of us. It's because we're made in his image and likeness and we're his image bearers on this planet. And more than anything, we're supposed to be reflecting the glory of God to the world around us. And sadly, we don't. Sadly, if you read in Genesis 3, because of the rebellion of Adam and Eve, we seek our own. We seek our own glory. We seek our own attention. And when that then is confronted with a sovereign and holy God, chaos ensues. Because guys, I'm here to tell you this. I've been a follower of God now for about 16 years. God does not share his glory. He doesn't. And I, I, there are still things about God that I'm not totally sure of, and I'm, I'm trying to grow as I study his word, and I'm not questioning that one. God will not share his throne with me. He will not do it, and he will not share his throne with you. I was reminded even in Isaiah chapter 45 this past week, Isaiah is talking and he's speaking for God about how God is using King Cyrus for the glory of God and using him how he wants. And look at what he says in verse 9. This is him talking about human beings. And look at the imagery he uses. He says, woe to him who strives with him who formed him. So he's saying, woe to anyone that stands up against Cyrus because they're ultimately standing up against me. If they're standing up to him, they're standing up against me because I have decided what I'm going to do with Cyrus who formed him a pot among earthen pots. 
Does the clay say to him who forms it, what are you making? Or your work has no handles. Do you see what Isaiah is saying there and what ultimately God is saying? To question God is foolishness. It would be as if you as a potter were sitting on your pottery wheel doing your thing. And I, I mean, I've tried to do pottery one time and it just falls over, so I'm not an expert on this. It would be like if you made something and you sat there and as it's drying, the clay was just able to speak to you and was like, why did you do this this way? You guys see why you're laughing? Because you see the folly in that. You see the folly in a piece of clay speaking back to you, asking you why you made it that way. And yet what the scripture is saying here is we do the same thing with God. We are the clay. He is the potter. And this is a tough pill to swallow, guys. I get it. But at the very core of what Scripture teaches us is that life is not about us. It is about God displaying His glory and His grandeur to the world around us. And so I think what we see in Naomi's life and what often leads us to bitterness as well is we start with this place that we forget that God is sovereign and creator and we fail to recognize then the implications of that and actually believe it. And from that, we're led to the second place. We assume that we should not have to experience suffering. Maybe to put it another, another way, we assume that we should not have to deal with unmet expectations. And this is tied to the first. But if we are the center of creation, if you sitting here this morning believe that you are the most important thing in this room and in this city and in this state and in this world this morning, then you're going to fail to realize that suffering is a reality of this world and that you will be confronted with it at some point. It is a reality that all of us will face. And the Bible explains why. Genesis chapter 3, the fall, shalom and peace in the world is not how God originally designed and intended it, but is under a curse because of rebellion. And since then, right, we see the suffering in the world around us, and we know even on a small level, hey, that's just life. But then we're foolish enough to believe that we are different and shouldn't have to face it. Guys, hear me on this. Life contains suffering because of our sin and rebellion towards God. And even if you think you are perfect, go all the way back to Adam. We can either embrace that reality, embrace that truth head on, and in that embracing, begin to move towards God, or we can begin to move towards bitterness and resentment because life will bring about suffering and hardship. It will. How many Gen Zers do I have in the room? You know, it's not like some of you. Gen Z, it's okay. Raise your hand with pride. You are the future. So I was reading about Gen Z and, and kind of like the things that they see about them and, and some things that are reality. And this is going to sound really harsh for a moment, but it's actually your parents' fault, according to the researcher. 
He's saying, hey, Gen Zers are not equipped to handle the realities of life once they leave the home and the difficulty of it. And some of you guys are like, how dare you say that? Don't get mad at me. I didn't do the research. I just read the article. And they said the primary reason for that is because of the failures of psychology over the last 60 years that have taught us that a parent's primary role is to reduce suffering and difficulty for their kids as much as possible. And so you kind of live your life and you grow up in this bubble, not created by you, but created by your parents. Right? This is why, by the way, Jackie, I'm going to call you out right now, honey. Here we go. This is why Jackie and I are always button heads with our kids. Because my wife, she's the protective mother bear. And so our kids are getting ready to do something really stupid, and, and we both see it. And if you've ever raised boys, your primary role as a parent is just to make sure they don't kill themselves. Because they will find a way even in an empty room. And she's running over and she's picking up and she's scooping up. I'm like, oh, don't do that, don't do that. And I'm like, pain is a great lesson. And so Jackie will look at me and she'll be like, no, go get him. I'm like, he will only do that one time, I promise you. Because <laughs> pain and suffering are a great lesson to all of us. Now, Jackie's a great balance to me because there have been times where my foolish hippie parenting style may have actually led to their demise. But there are other times, right, where I have to reel her back in and say, you know what, are we going to spend our whole life standing over our kids' shoulders screaming at them, avoid the pain? Or are we going to teach them, hey, this is the reality, and the stove's hot, don't go touch it, dude. Right, you want to do that? You know what, go ahead, be my guest. We won't do that again. We are not sovereign. We are not the creator of the universe. And because of the fall and our rebellion towards God, suffering and hardship and death are a reality that every single one of us in this room will face and must face. Will we do that in light of knowing that there is a holy and loving God there for us? Or will we face it on our own and in that reality turn to bitterness and resentment and anger towards him? Because as we see here, both responses happen in Ruth chapter 1. Let's say Ruth responds to God in dependence, trusting ultimately in him over her current reality. And we're going to see all sorts of awesome stuff. Or we can respond like Naomi, crushed, angry, bitter. And the beauty is, over the course of this story, what we're going to see is God and his mercy is going to redeem both of them. But I would say this morning, the takeaway for us is you're going to enjoy Ruth's response more than you're going to, rejo- than you're going to enjoy Naomi's. You're going to be more fun to be around as a Ruth than a Naomi. And you'll start seeing God's purposes and plan behind these things. Because God wants to free us from the suffering and hardship we experience, but he wants to do it on his terms, not ours. And I think this will lead us to the last point of what leads us to bitterness and anger and resentment is that in the midst of all this, as we fail to see God's sovereignty and as we fail to believe that 
suffering and hardship are a reality for us, the third thing that happens is we fail to believe that God works all things for good. Because, guys, I get this. When, you're, when we are in the midst of hurt and suffering, it's hard to believe anything good's coming out of it. Amen? It's hard. And let's not, let's not lie to us. And let's not pretend like things are okay and that we just lack the faith. It's tough. Right, but look at what Paul says in Romans 8, verse 26 through 28. It says, likewise, the Spirit does what? Helps us in our weakness. Right? God has given us, if you are a follower of Jesus this morning, God has given you the Holy Spirit to walk with you through all of this and to help you. He's there. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. Isn't that comforting? Think about that. Like if you are in the midst of suffering and difficulty here this morning, and you're like, and I ask you, are you praying about it? And you're like, no, I, I don't. I don't know what to pray. Just sit quietly. The Spirit's going to do something for you. Like think about that. Like that's how much God cares for you, that he's given you the Holy Spirit so that if you don't know what to say, God will do it for you. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to what? The will of God. Isn't that great? Not only will the Holy Spirit intercede for you, but he's going to do it and chase after God's will. And look at verse 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his promise. See what Paul says there? He doesn't say, and we think that for those who love God, all things work together for good. Now, what does he say? We know this to be a fact. That God works things for our good but not according to our definition, but by God's standards. See, God can see things far in the future, as we're going to see as we study this book, that's going to make the long haul better than the short term. Suffering is used by God to bring about our good, even if we don't like it. Right? For those of you guys that were here this last week, you remember my story about reaching a breaking point with Josiah and his epilepsy and all the things that were going on in our family. God worked that for my good. He did. He worked it for my family's good. He worked it for my good. And by the way, if you were to come up here and say, well, Kevin, would you want to walk through all of that again? Do you like Josiah to be suffering with seizures the way that he was and your family being in and out of the hospital and life being? No. I would never beg God to give me more suffering. But he still worked it for my good and for his glory because that's what he does. So how can I know that I'm heading down a road towards bitterness with God like Naomi was? What might be some of the warning signs? Well, you might actually, if, you're like, if you examine your life and you ask yourself what's going on, you might actually say, hey, if I ask myself the question, do I believe that I should be immune to hardship? I actually do believe that. If that's the case, repent. That is not a reality for you. Some other ways that you might see yourself heading down a road towards bitterness. You start defining contentment and joy in this life 
based solely on your current circumstances and not on what God says is true of you. Life can be hard. What does the Bible say about this life? What does the Bible say about me? What does God say is true about me? What does God say about my son and his epilepsy and my family being in and out of the hospital and all the things that we're walking through? What does God say about this? When I leave you or forsake you, he who began a good work in you will see it through to the day of Christ Jesus. God can and God cares. Another sign that you might be heading down a toward a road of bitterness. And this is usually where it starts becoming obvious to those around you. You start avoiding biblical community. And church, hear me on this. We are to blame for that for, for some reason. Right? We have a bunch of really, really cool Christian cliches, right? So that when someone's like really suffering, really hurting, and like they're like broken, and we'll walk up to them like, God's using this for good. They don't want to hear that. You know what the Bible tells you to do in that moment? Weep with those who are weeping. Mourn with them. You don't have to have the right thing to say. If there's one thing I've learned in the last 15 years, sometimes the best thing you can do with someone who's in depression or a pit of despair is put your arm around with them and cry with them and not say a word. You know what's, how God used the body of Christ to minister to me during that season? People were just present. I don't remember anything I said, anything people said to me. And as a matter of fact, the things I do remember were usually very unhelpful. Like I remember one guy, love him to death, calls me, wants to pray for me. And his question, what's God teaching you during this time? I don't know, dude. I barely got dressed this morning. You want it in a paper? He was trying to be helpful, very unhelpful but you may see that you're heading down this path if you start intentionally avoiding biblical community. And then this last one, and again, this is not an exhaustive list, but I think one of the biggest things you can notice in your life if you're heading that or path to resentment and bitterness and anger towards God is prayerlessness. And I just want to share this quote with you from Sam Albury. Prayerlessness is a sign that someone is trying to run things in their own strength for their own sake and under their own authority. Prayerlessness arises from a sense of independence from God so that instead of praying about our desires, we indulge them. Rather than trusting in the Father who delights in giving good gifts to his children as Jesus promises us in Matthew chapter 7, we ourselves decide what is good, and seek to gain it through our own efforts. If you are in the midst of a season of difficulty and trial and hardship, you need God more, not less. And even if you can't see the work that he is doing, don't neglect to cry out to him because we need him. And so we see a bitter Naomi doubling down with bitterness and anger towards God, and yet we are going to see in that God will respond with mercy, provision, and redemption as he unveils what he's doing in their life, even though Naomi could not see it. Look at, look at chapter 2 of Ruth with me. Now Naomi had a relative of her husband's a worthy man of the clan of Elimelech, whose name was Boaz. 
And Ruth the Moabite said to Naomi, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. And she said to her, go, my daughter. So she set out and went and gleaned in the field and after the reapers. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz, who was of the clan of Elimelech, right? So we get introduced to this guy by the name of Boaz here, starting in chapter two. And more on him in just a moment. But we see Ruth asks Naomi, hey, let me go to the field and glean. I'll work for us, right? We need to eat. Let me go, let me go work in this field. And Naomi says, go. And I love this part in verse three, right? Because this is the first part in the narrative where we see God at work, even though Ruth and Naomi don't know it yet, right? Look at this part. And she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to who? Boaz. It's like, hey, you could have gone anywhere around Bethlehem and you just so happened to roam into the field of this really, really godly dude who loves God and wants to honor him and wants to obey his word by the name of Boaz. And if we understand the Hebrew there, the Hebrew is basically saying, and just by chance, in air quotes, she walked into the field of Boaz. See, God is at work here, guys. It is not an accident that Ruth wanders into that field. God was sovereignly working out, getting Ruth out of Moab and into this field of Boaz because he is going to save and redeem everyone in this situation. And so when you get to verse 4, right, Boaz walks up and look what happens. And behold, Boaz came from Bethlehem and he said to the reapers, the Lord be with you. And then Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of his reapers, whose young woman is this? And the servant who was in charge of the reapers answered, she is the young Moabite woman who came back with Naomi from the country of Moab. She said, please let me glean and gather among the sheaves after the reapers. So she came and she has continued from early morning until now, except for a short rest. So how is God at work in Boaz? Well, we see a couple things here, right? First, they call him a worthy man, but notice the first thing he says to his servants. He walks up to him, and what, and what does he say? Lord be with you. Right? He's reminding them, hey, everything we're doing, even if it's reaping in these fields, is for the glory of God. The fact that we have a harvest is because of God and his grace towards us. God be with you. Right? He clearly loves God, and he loves his servants. And his servants respond to him, and he walks up to me and says, hey, who, who is this woman? Who is that? She was a foreign Moabite, so she clearly had some sort of distinguishing difference among the other people that were in the field. And their response, well, that's Naomi's Moabite woman. That's the foreigner. She asked to work. And let me tell you something, and I love this, right? Because see what they say? She's worked. Like, dude, she got here at sunup, and she's taken one break. She's outworked all of us. She's been getting after it. And I want to pause on that for a second because I've heard over the years that one of the reasons God redeems Ruth and we see her at work and that she's blessed is because of her hard work here. And I want to put that notion to bed, right? Because if we allow ourselves to get warped here and read this story, right? what we're going to start teaching people is, hey, if you're in a hard place, the reason you're not out of it yet is because you don't have enough faith and you're not working hard enough yet. 
You guys, that is a dangerous, dangerous theology to teach. And it's unbiblical. It is a dangerous place to be in, right? Because what you're ultimately saying is, oh, you haven't picked yourself up by your own bootstraps enough. The reason your life stinks so much is because you stink. The reason life is so tough is because you're lazy. Who's the lazy one in this story, by the way? Naomi. I don't know how old she is or what's going on, but she's not working. But look at what happens. She says, let me go to the field and glean among the ears of grain after him in whose sight I shall find favor. That seems like a pretty innocent statement. Like, hey, I just plan to go out into the field. What is she actually communicating? I'm going to go out there and work, and I believe that God is going to provide for me, and I'm going to find favor out there. It's going to be God who hooks me up. I'm going to find favor when I get out there. I'm going to go glean, and I'm hopeful that God will lead me to a place where I'll find favor. And that word favor in the Hebrew here is the same word that we see in the New Testament for grace, which means undeserved acceptance, an undeserved gift. Right? What Ruth is saying to Naomi, I'm going to go work, and I'm going to pray that God will take me to the place where someone will allow me to bring back some food, even though we don't deserve it. That's what we're going to do. Right? Ruth, the foreigner, is looking for an opportunity to provide for her mom, and she does so by throwing herself at God's mercy. This doesn't stop her from working hard, but notice she works hard not for God's favor, but from God's favor. Guys, that is vitally important if you consider yourself a follower of Jesus here this morning. Because there are two kind of, let me, let me pause for a second. In future weeks, we're going to see this. Boaz is a foreshadow to Jesus, right? We're going to see that Boaz is this really, really godly dude. And, and we're going to have a, even maybe a temptation to consider him the hero of this story. And he's not. God is. And Boaz is just showing us how the even better Boaz is Jesus. But Boaz is a righteous, godly man. He allows her to glean in the fields. This, by the way, was provided in the Levitical law. So before we give Boaz too much credit, what we should be saying is, well, God thought through the fact that there might be widows who wouldn't be able to provide for themselves. And so he created in his law a way to love and care for them, right? Look at Leviticus chapter 19 with me, starting in verse 9. He says, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge. Neither shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare. Neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. See, God is making a way to provide for Ruth and Naomi all the way back in the wilderness. But Boaz, because he's a righteous man, obeys the Father. And his obedience provides for Ruth and Naomi. But the favor and the grace comes from God first. 
through Boaz as an instrument of that favor. And because Boaz is a godly dude, Ruth and Naomi are allowed to provide for themselves, right? Maybe a proper way to announce this would be working welfare. They're allowed to work to provide for themselves when they wouldn't be able to. But look at this. I mean, look at it closely, guys. Does Ruth do anything to earn Boaz's favor when he shows up in the story? Has, has she done anything to earn his favor? No. All the grace that Ruth is shown here in chapter 2 is because of God's mercy and grace towards her and her plight in life. She still works hard, but not for God's favor, but from it. Hear me on this, guys. This is what the Christian life is like. We work and we strive for obedience and to learn who God is and know who we are more from God's favor, not for it. Right? The gospel tells us this, right? The good news of Jesus Christ displays this to us, that God provides a way when there is no way. Ruth and Naomi have no way to feed themselves. God provides a way. For us sitting here this morning, your sin and rebellion towards a holy God means that there is no way to be reconciled to the Father unless the Father provides a way, and he did through the work and person of Jesus Christ. A way was made when there was no way. And from that favor, Ruth enters the field and works and provides. And guys, for us, from that favor and grace that God bestows us in Christ, do we enter into the mission field being salt and light to the world around us, putting sin to death, repenting before others, reconciling relationships that are broken because of sin and rebellion, and telling others the good news of Christ and what he's done for us. There's no such thing as a good Christian. But there is such thing for every Christian, and that's that we serve a good God who has given and lavished his grace on us. And we work from his favor in obedience. And this means, right, as we work from favor and not for God's favor, that we need to, to do the hard work amongst ourselves as Christians to constantly be making sure that we don't fall into one of the two dangerous errors that Christians often find themselves in. And that's either running towards licentiousness or running towards legalism. Some of you guys are like, what is that? Right? Licentiousness means, it's, it's kind of this idea that God loves me and he forgives me and Jesus died for me. And because he did that, I can do anything I want because I can't make him happy. And so I won't. I'm just going to live my life and do what I want because Jesus died for me. And basically, right, you treat Jesus as if he is your get out of jail free card in Monopoly. He's there when I need him. Instead of, he is the center of my story and he is my reason for living. Right, licentiousness 
robs God of his glory because it treats his holiness and his standards as if they don't matter. Guys, if God really doesn't care how you live, then why did Jesus have to die? Why did he suffer the wrath of a holy God and Father if your sin doesn't matter? It does matter. It matters so much that God made a way when there was no way. And so we must fight to avoid this error of licentiousness. But guys, on the flip side, we have to fight to avoid the error of legalism, which says, God is angry at me. He's a strict dad, and I got to do whatever I can to obey him because he might stop loving me if I don't do what I'm supposed to do. As both of those two things, legalism and licentiousness, neither one of those two things is what union with Christ looks like. We are shown grace and favor and mercy and love in Christ. And then from that, we pursue good works for the glory of God. Right? This is why James is able to say in James chapter 2 right, that faith without works is dead. Right? Look, listen to what he says. Starting in verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Right? Here's what James is saying. If we are in Christ, working from that favor, our works display what is already going on inside. It's the same way Jesus uses the illustration of a tree that produces good fruit and bad fruit. If you're a good tree, you produce good fruit. If you're a diseased tree, you produce bad fruit. Boaz works from his faith in God, and because of that, he obeys and follows Leviticus 19. Because Ruth works from her faith in God. She works hard to glean from the field after the reapers, and she provides for her family. But all of this is not because of the good work of Boaz or because of the good work of Ruth, but because of God's grace and mercy towards them. God is the hero. And we see that in these last few verses, verses 8 through 13 of Ruth chapter 2 we see one more example of God not just providing for Ruth and Naomi, but lavishly providing for them. Look at this. Then Boaz said to Ruth, now listen, my daughter, do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. Let your eyes be on the field that they are reaping and go after them. Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. Then she fell on her face, bowing to the ground. She said to them, what have I done to find favor in your eyes? See that? She gets it. What have I possibly done to receive this favor? 
Take notice of me, that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner. But Boaz answered her, All that you have done for your mother in law since the death of your husband has been fully told to me. Now you left your father and mother and your native land and came to a people that you did not know before. The Lord repay you for what you have done, and a full reward be given to you by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. See what he's saying there? Ruth, your works display the faith that is already going on internally. May God repay that faith. God is going to show you how great he is. Then she said, I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, for you have comforted me and spoken kindly to your servant, though I am not one of your servants. Right? Boaz shows even more grace to Ruth than what, he's, what she's already experienced. Right? Go, drink. Right? He provides for her. He keeps the young men away from her to protect her dignity and tells her to stay with the women. And then he pastors her by telling her that her full reward will be given to her by God. Right? He points her not to himself in his own mercy, but he points her back to God. Right? God will repay you. He will repay your faith and trust. Right? Bo- Boaz gives us a small glimpse here, guys, in chapter 2 of what Jesus ultimately is for us. Jesus is the better Boaz. Right? As Boaz for Ruth here is pastor and protector and provider, Jesus is the better pastor, protector, and provider. Right? Jesus came to warn us of our sin and proclaim that the kingdom of God was at hand, that he was finally here to redeem us and called us to repent and turn to God. He's the better protector in that he took on the wrath of the Father and drank it on our behalf so we wouldn't take the Father's wrath. He shielded us from the Father's wrath and that he provides for us that if we are in him, we are reconciled to God. Church, here's how I want to finish this morning. We can look to Boaz and we can be encouraged. We can see that Boaz, working from his faith in God, provides a way for Ruth and Naomi to be provided for and ultimately to be taken back to their creator. But Boaz is just a type of Jesus. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to ask us a series of questions. I want you to write them down. I want you to ponder them this week. Do you know Jesus as your pastor? Or do you know that Jesus' message, right, as he walked this earth, right, called us to both see our sin, confess it, and repent of it. And in that, do you know Jesus as your protector? Have you surrendered to him, knowing that as he hung from the cross, the full wrath of God's anger towards sin and rebellion was being poured out on him? That for those that are in Christ, he's a shield from the wrath of God because of our sin and rebellion, not his own. And do you know Jesus as your provider? And have you let him reconcile, rescue, 
and redeem you. To provide a way back to your creator. If you don't know him in that way, this is my plea to you to not leave here today without trusting in him for those things. There are tons of people here that would love to talk to you about this. Right, come find me after the service. Right, find Pastor Daniel, find Pastor Theo. Talk to us. We would love to talk to you about this. But do not leave here today without being reminded that Jesus is the great pastor, protector, and provider of our souls. And that we are here to worship him for that. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that in a story with such pain and hurt and loss like the one we read here in the book of Ruth, your grace and mercy pierce through the darkness and you reveal yourself to be merciful and faithful to both Ruth and Naomi. God, would you move in us this morning as your people, as your bride to see you as our pastor, as our protector and provider. And Lord, will you, through the power of the Holy Spirit, use that to drive us to repent of sin, confess you as Lord, and to worship and praise you because you are worthy. And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to move to a time of response and communion this morning. If you haven't already, you can go to one of the tables and grab a packet for communion as I speak here this morning. And, and one thing I want to share with you is we take communion every week here at Aletheia Church. And we do that very, very intentionally because, one, we believe God has asked us to do so. But we do so not as an act of penance or sorrow, but we do so as an act of worship. Because as we take communion together as the body of Christ, what we are declaring is that Jesus, when he gave his life for us, declared victory over sin and death in his life, death, burial, and resurrection once and for all. And we take communion as an act of worship and gratitude towards God for what he has done for us in Christ. And so if you are here this morning, we would invite you as a Christian to go and take communion with us together. If you are not a Christian this morning, we would ask that you not take communion. Because what Scripture actually tells us is as we take the bread and the juice together, what we are doing is we are identifying ourselves in union with Christ, having poured out his flesh and blood for us. And that we're taking part in a solemn act of worship towards God. And if you take communion and you don't believe, Scripture actually says that you are heaping condemnation up on yourself, and we would want you to avoid that. Instead, we would want you to seriously consider and ponder why you haven't given your life to Christ yet. And talk to somebody about that, because we believe that Christ loves you and gave himself up for you. We're going to enter in a time of response together now. Communion is a way we celebrate our intimate connection 
an ongoing relationship with Jesus. Right? Jesus invites all of his people who have trusted in him for salvation to partake in the Lord's Supper, communion. Communion is our opportunity as the people of God to spend time in quiet meditation, considering and confessing our sins. And once we have confessed these sins, we partake in the bread and the juice as an act of worship. Communion is a reminder that Jesus freely gave his life so that we might be forgiven and adopted as God's children. We take it not as an act of contrition and penance, but worship because in Christ we have been forgiven. We also take the Lord's Supper as a foretaste to a future time when we will dine at the banquet feet of Christ in heaven. I'm going to lead us through this simple response time as we partake in communion as you feel led this morning. I would invite you now to take just a few minutes in silence to pray to God, to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal any sin to you that you may not have taken to him and confessed and repented of. I would invite you to repent of that sin, knowing that God offers you mercy and forgiveness for that in Christ, and ask him to lead you forward in humility and obedience in the week ahead. Let's pray. Church, Paul shares with us a simple way to remember Jesus' atoning work for us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Starting in verse 23, he says this, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. That the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. You may now take the wafer, and eat. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. You may now drink the juice For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's pray and thank God for his mercy to us in Christ. Eternal God and Heavenly Father, you have graciously accepted us as living members of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you for communion, and that it reminds us of the magnitude of your love for us and the way in which it encourages us 
to continuously worship you because you are worthy. Father, will you send us now into the world in peace? And will you grant us strength and courage to love and serve you with gladness and obedience? And I ask this all in Jesus' name. Amen.